From the WNET Group in New York, hi, I'm Tom Stewart, and welcome to WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who create our content. This holiday season, Boston's GBH and PBS are presenting a two-hour retrospective television special and internet stream titled 20 Years of Christmas with the Tabernacle Choir. Our guest today is the program's host and narrator and a longtime friend of public media, Tony Award-winning actor and singer Brian Stokes Mitchell. Stokes, welcome to WNET Up Next. It's great to have you here with us. It's great to be here. Thank you, Tom. Stokes, I've been a big fan of the Tabernacle Choir Christmas concerts over the years and hope you can fill us in on this very special one, which has been described as a gift from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to the world, truly a gift of joy. How did this all come about? Well, I first performed with the choir, it probably was in 2006, maybe. And then I actually did the Christmas uh, show that they did for that year. We taped it in 2008, but they tape a year before. Mm -hmm. So the one that you're going to see aired now, we actually taped last Christmas season. And uh, and I've done a few other concerts with them and just have, have developed a really wonderful relationship with, with them and with Mac Wilberg, who was the conductor and arranger, orchestrator, genius behind it all. And when this unusual Christmas celebration came up, they uh, gave me a call and were telling me the ideas they had and asked me if I would host it. And I said, absolutely. It's been very, very interesting because for those that haven't seen the show, and I hope you see this one, because one, what's great about it is it's a 20-year retrospective, but it's done in a 21,000-seat auditorium. Uh, so the first time that I walked into it when I was performing is, you know, is really amazing because it's filled with everybody rehearsing, and then you finally get your audience in there. This time I walked into the house, and it was dark. There was nobody there. There was no choir. There was no orchestra. And of course, there was no audience there as well. So what we created is a show that kind of takes you behind the scenes. So you could see how, how the shows are put together, where the choir rehearses, what it's like backstage, what it's like for the guest artists. And you see over the last 20 years, all of the different artists' clips. It's kind of a greatest hits. It's really Absolutely. a spectacular Best show. Of. Yeah, exactly. And it's moving and it just fills you with happiness and joy and what what is the most special part about this experience for me was it it really illustrates i think what we human beings can do when we work together toward a common goal a common cause and in this case it was putting on this massive incredibly complicated production christmas show during covid and having to deal with all of the issues that we've all been dealing with, but especially when you're trying to put on a show without an orchestra, without a choir, and without an audience, it's all about that. It was really daunting, but the final result is is quite remarkable, I think, and really moving. So was it really strange to be there without a live audience, having had the experience of the live audience a few years before? Yes and no. And I say no because we, when you rehearse for these shows, you're rehearsing without the audience there. You're rehearsing in an empty auditorium. The kind of uh, uh, the prize at the end of it all is you know with all this rehearsal, when you're in there with the choir and the orchestra, you know eventually all those 21,000 seats will be filled for three performances. I mean, there are people waiting in line to get in. They never can accommodate all the people that they want to see the show. Unless you watch it on television, which is, I think, why it's such a, a highly rated show. I think it's PBS's highest rated holiday show is this particular one. So it was very moving to be there uh, without anyone there as, as well. It had a, a different flavor. 
But the audience gets to see it both ways. They get to see it without, empty, and they get to see it over the last 20 years with all kinds of people. And it's spectacular in so many aspects. Uh, oh, thank you. First of all, from a television point of view, it's just beautiful. <laughs> That's all I can think <laughs> of is when I'm watching the show. And the music is in, just incredible, of course. But the photography and the way that your backstage tour is weaved in, it's almost like a, uh, a film noir, Stokes in the Hallways, uh, <laughs> <laughs> opening doors. Uh, it's just really, really loved it. I'm so glad you did. I mean, we had many discussions before we even started, you know, what should this be? And what would I want to talk about? What would I want to say? And I was really high on the idea of, of giving people a under the hood backstage look at what goes on. And we got to show everybody without anybody there. And you also get to see it populated as well. And and I, I have to say, I've seen a number of these shows. And it is, I think, by far my favorite of all of them because it is a greatest hits and because it is bittersweet and because there are a lot of new things we got to do as well that have never been done before. Um, I did a, a song with Mac Wilberg called That's What Christmas Means to Me, which is a very obscure Christmas song. I think it's only been recorded once before by an artist in the 50s. To see my folks and all my friends again around the family Christmas tree to feel the spirit of goodwill toward them. That's what Christmas means to me. We did uh, an amazing arrangement of Holy Infant Lowly is the, is the song's title. Uh, Mac orchestrated it, and it was the first time that the orchestra had actually gotten together. This was probably nine months into COVID, and seen each other and played with each other in three dimensions was when we recorded that. It's that number that you're seeing, so you'll see a lot and feel a lot of emotion coming out of everybody. And even though the choir couldn't be there, they ended up recording themselves on their own cell phones, and then it was assembled by a brilliant editor who then brought everybody, all of these elements together, and that's one of the finales that we have there. And there's there's a lot of other new new elements too that that have not been seen before. incredibly moving the way that it's presented. It's the only kind of specific acknowledgement of these roller coaster times that we've been living through for almost two years now. Again, I was moved to tears. It's just, there's such beauty and such artistry involved in the show. It just really hits you right in your heart. And it certainly hit me there. And I was there when it was made. It's like, <laughs> what am I doing crying? You're allowed, you're allowed. <laughs> do, you, do you have any favorite moments that you've had of working with the choir and the orchestra when, when you were out there in that big theater? One of my favorite memories of performing with the choir was actually done one of the Veterans Days. They actually invited my father to come up. He was living in San Diego. He's since passed away, but he uh, was a, a, one of the Tuskegee Airmen. He taught radio code and blinker code there. Wow. And, uh, and they came down, they filmed him, they interviewed him, they put together pictures and did this beautiful segment. And I sang What a Wonderful World with the orchestra and the choir as well. That's And my father sat in the audience 
audience watching all this and they just treated him like royalty. It was really, really special, special moment. Another thing is the very first time I sang with the choir, there's a song that they sing, kind of the farewell thank you song to everybody. And this is a tradition that they do. And you never see this because it's never taped. This is really a special moment that happens where they bring the artists up on the stage. And uh, I was standing up there and I remember this choir sings this song and everybody is just focused. It, it feels like it's a song that goes right into your heart. And it's the most incredible feeling. It's an acapella number. And to hear those nearly 400 voices sing right straight into your body, into your heart, into your soul. There's nothing like that. And just anything with Mac Wilberg, we had the best time together. We did a wonderful arrangement of The Friendly Beasts that was so much fun where I got to play all the voices and characters, you know, uh -huh. the donkey and the, and the doves and everybody. And he came up with this wonderful arrangement that seems to have really delighted everybody. And, and it has since come into my repertoire every holiday season because it's, uh, I just love it so. I want to be able to touch on some of the other wonderful people who are appearing in this program. Many colleagues of yours from Broadway are in this program. The one that comes to mind first for me is Audra McDonald. Yes. Yeah, it was because of Audra, actually. She was the first person I called when they first asked me to perform uh, with the choir, and I had not performed with them at this point. And I called Audra because I know that she had done a Christmas show already. I said, Audra, so what's the experience like? She says, is this something I should do? And um, so we talked uh, uh, for quite some time about it, but she had the same kind of experience that I did where it was spectacular for her as well. Also, Kristen Chenoweth, yep. Angela Lansbury, Kelly O'Hara, uh, Laura Osnes, Gladys Knight, yes. Natalie Cole has yeah, been guests. And then Renee and then Fleming is there. Renee, yes. Walter Cronkite was one of the uh, <laughs> was one of the uh, uh, narrators as well. And and also Tom Brokaw. The Muppets have been there. You'll see these in this retrospective and you understand why people love this show so much. Angels from the realms of glory wing your flight o'er all the earth. Ye who sang creation's story now proclaim Messiah's birth. Gloria. It's just great. And, and uh, think about these Broadway people. I, I think about you and I think about all of the performances I've seen of yours over the years. The New York Times has dubbed you the last leading man. I don't know quite <laughs> what that means, but it, I think it's a definitely, it's definitely a compliment. Uh, yeah, but Ragtime, so. uh, Kiss Me Kate, Man of La Mancha, King Hedley II, favorite roles among that group? Or are they all favorite roles? You know, if you ask me, if I'm working on a show, you ask me what my favorite show is. I'll, it's always the one I happen to be working on at the time. But looking back, I have to say that the most magical show I've ever done has, was Ragtime. Yeah. For many, many reasons. It was the show that really launched me. I, don't know, there was, I think it was my fourth Broadway show, but it was the show that really kind of launched me into a, a new kind of level. And just what that show was, what was being said, the way the audiences respond to it, and because it deals with issues of race and immigrants and all the same issues we've dealt with as a country from the very beginning, and we continue to go through, even during that time. As a matter of fact, at the Tony Awards, when we were up for the Tony, because everybody was saying, oh, you guys are going to win all the Tonys. You're going to win all the Tonys. And then the Lion King opened. <laughs> a little show and called The Lion King. Yeah, it, it was one of those years when you have two blockbuster shows, you know, and so um, everybody kept telling me I was going to win the Tony and, you know, every, we're going to win the Tony. Well, after the show, of course, I didn't win the Tony. The show, uh, Lynn and Steve won for best score and it won a few other things, but mostly Ra The Lion King won. 
About two days after that, there was a man named Thomas Bird in Texas, a black man who was dragged behind a truck and, and uh, by some racists until his body uh, disintegrated and he, of course, died. And we got word of that. And oftentimes we would discuss things like this before we did a performance. And uh, we discussed this before the show and because that's what our show is about. It's about racism and the effects of that as well and what it means to be an American and all of those things. And I remember taking my bow at that curtain call and coming up from the bow and I felt so ashamed that I was bummed out, as the whole company was, that we didn't win the Tony Award uh. because it was in that moment that I realized, oh, that's not what we're here for. There are much more important things and reasons that we're doing this show. And from that moment on, I was, I was absolutely fine not winning the, the award. That's why that show is so magical. And those experiences continued throughout the, the run of that show for me. So, and to this day, other people say the same thing that have been doing it locally in their schools, in their regional theaters, in their colleges, in their universities. Everybody seems to have these kind of magical experiences with the show. So I'm so proud and happy that I, I got to to be the progenitor of that role. And, and, and when I think of Ragtime, I immediately start humming Wheels of a Dream, uh, which is your, <laughs> yes. your wonderful uh, duet with uh, Audra, Audra McDonald. Yeah, she and I got to do that on the last Tony Awards, and we don't sing that very often. I think it's only the second time that we, we have sung it. We sung it at the White House together as well. We're both so busy, we don't get to perform very much. And man, that was a special Tony Awards, and getting to sing that song on it with Audra again. Uh, something magical happens when I sing with her, and we, we always kind of acknowledge that with each other, that it seems something special happens between our voices when they meet, that I, I, we, neither of us can explain it, but we just experience it. Do more. It. We want you to do more. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Now, so the last time I met you was a number of years ago. You had just appeared at Carnegie Hall, co-starring with Reba McIntyre, and a gala performance ah. of South Pacific, which was the pride of public television that year. And that was, a, that was another wonderful experience you've had on public media over the years, I know. I'm so grateful for public television and public radio as well. I spent hours and hours and hours and hours on both of them. And to not only be able to watch it and experience it and the work of other artists, but to be asked to be on a show, to be a part of something, to be a part of great performances or whatever it may be. I've done many, many shows on public television, and I just feel so honored to be in the company, you know, the Reba McIntyres and the Paul Gemignani's and the and the uh, who was the conductor of the show and uh, uh, Michael Tilson Thomas and Audra, uh, where we did our I think that was my Carnegie Hall debut. We mm -hmm. had our Carnegie Hall debut together, uh, which was also aired on a PBS. Uh, it was a hundredth anniversary of George Gershwin, I think. So I just feel very very blessed that I've been able to to work at this level. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. My very first time in Carnegie Hall was literally walking on the stage and doing the performance. <laughs> so I'd never been in Carnegie Hall before that. That's the way to and go to Carnegie Hall. <laughs> it certainly is, yes. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Uh, Show up. <laughs> you know, go, go through the yeah. stage door. <laughs> so I was very fortunate. That's wonderful. I'd like to turn to April of 2020. You and your family contracted COVID-19. Uh, um, just me, not my oh, family, Oh, I actually. thought it was your family. It was just you. yes. Yeah. But after your recovery, you took a song from Man of La Mancha and performed it out your window for your neighbors. 
Yes. That was a wonderful idea to thank the first responders and the medical people helping out at that time. What was that experience like for you? It's given you another little footnote in, oh, he's the guy that did that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never thought it'd be so easy to be famous. I mean, that went viral. I mean, I, people were calling me from like Japan and Australia. I just saw you singing and then every news outlet covered it. And I think, you know, more people have seen me do that than all of the things I've done in my entire career combined. Um, and you, you just know, and were was, staying, and you were at home. You were just doing yeah, it at home. Yeah. Just, yeah, if I'd known all I had to do was open my window and sing out over Broadway, you know, I would have done that a long time ago. But what's interesting is I just did it as a one-off. I wasn't planning on making a long occasion out of it. It was my way to say thank you. While I had COVID, I was laying in bed and I heard all this noise coming from the front room at seven o'clock at night. And then I asked my wife, what's going on? It sounded like she was screaming and shouting. And she said, yeah, spontaneously, it's just something that New York has started every night. We we yes. stop what we're doing and we we hang out the windows and we clap and bang on pots. And, and seven to o'clock. Yes, yeah, seven o'clock to say thank you to the essential workers. I thought, oh, that's a great idea. But I was still flat out in bed with COVID, by the way. But I joined the window and I clapped. And then one day when I went out to applaud for the essential workers, all the applause died down for everybody. And just all of a sudden, I, the thought just came into my head, sing. I think he can sing. Yeah. And I just started spontaneously singing the impossible dream out the window. And everybody on the street stopped. And they looked up and they watched me sing. And I got through the song and then they broke out in spontaneous applause. And I thought, oh, okay, well, oh, I wasn't expecting that, but terrific. Next night comes, and I wasn't going to sing. I'm just doing it as a one-off. But I noticed there were a lot more people down on the street. So we finish, and the applause dies down for the essential workers, and I'm reaching up to, to close my window, and all of a sudden I hear somebody from the street yell, Sing the song! <laughs> so that started me singing The Impossible Dream from my window for two and a half months. And you've made a full recovery. I did, yes. It was ironic, too, and kind of sad, because here I was singing on Broadway every night, and meanwhile, Broadway was closed. All of my friends, the crew members, the orchestras, everybody works in the theater, everybody was out of work, and everybody was suffering, you know, and it's kind of this weird, weird irony. I started feeling like it was a little performative after a while, because I thought, now people are gathering, because literally hundreds and hundreds of people, the cops would pull up and stop traffic when I started singing, because they, I guess they didn't want anybody to get hit. And I started feeling, well, this doesn't feel like it's for the essential workers anymore. This feels like they're coming here to see, hear me sing for, yeah. for, for me. I feel like I'm doing a show for them. And no, I'm doing it as an act of gratitude. A day or two after I had that thought, I ran into a neighbor who lives across the street. And I never met him before. He said, Brian Stokes Mitchell. I said, yes. He said, I, I'm so happy I ran into you. And he started getting emotional. He said, I just want to say thank you. Uh, I come out every night. I come out, my wife and I, and we bring our two sons every night. We cheer on the essential workers, but we come to hear you sing. It's the one time in my day I feel joy. And that like hit me right through my heart. That is Because I forgot. Oh, yeah. But see, you, you, have, this, you have that talent because you are one of the most life-affirming people around. Well, I, thank you. I, I didn't know about that. I just do ah, what I you do. Are. But, you know, I... Yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize the effect that it had on other people. You know, you, you sing, you do this for a living. This is what I've been doing for, I don't know, 50 years now. You kind of forget not everybody does this or they feel it in a different way. And to me, it's just normal. And I had to be reminded by this gentleman that there is kind of a magic, I guess, in what we do. And especially for people to be able to 
stand on the street and hear a live performance that is being sung just in that moment, just in that time, and it would never be repeated. I'd sing it again the next day, but in a different way. It's mm -hmm. going to be a different day, a different people or whatever. It was a great reminder of the power of art actually, and how it changes us. And I, and it was odd because I was thinking, I was singing for the essential workers that made me think, well, I guess artists are essential workers of another kind because artists exactly. certainly got through me through the pandemic, through, you know, binge watching television. And that's what was special about this telecast as well. I think it's going to really lift a lot of people up because we're still not out of the woods yet, no, almost, yeah, no. but we're still there. And I think this, this telecast with the Tabernacle Choir will have the same effect and make everybody, connect everybody to their joy place, their happy place. Stokes, before we let you go, I want to ask you about Stephen Sondheim. You played oh. Sweeney Todd at the Kennedy Center, and I just wanted to yes. ask about what your thoughts about Sondheim and his work and legacy and any uh, personal remembrances you have of working on that show. Oh, man, we could do a whole separate three-hour podcast. Sure, I'm sure. Uh, me yeah. talking about Stephen Sondheim alone. I mean, he's just, I don't think there's ever been another theater artist in the perhaps the history of the world. Maybe Shakespeare would be close, <laughs> you know, the only other one that has changed the face of theater. He's like a, Shakespeare. He's changed the way musical theater is performed, the way we listen to songs, the way we perform songs. He changed the art form itself. And his work is still, it's been over 40 years now or so when he started writing, longer than that, actually, 50, almost 60 years when he started with West Side Story. And his work is still relevant. It still moves us. It's still beautiful. And he had a way of capturing the human spirit and the human condition with all of its warts, all of its flaws, all of its beauty, all of its horror, all of its terror, all of its joy. And he did it in a very unique way. You can always tell a Stephen Sondheim song. And I think his songs are the easiest to sing because when he writes, Steve used to say he'd sit on his sofa or lay on his sofa and he would become the character. Mm -hmm. So what you're hearing when a singer sings that is not only the singer being the character, but you're hearing the songwriter be the character. Mm -hmm. He knew not only how to write notes, but how to write spaces. No, not only how to write the lyrics, but the spaces between the lyrics. And that takes a real great artist to do that. And I just feel so blessed to have gotten not only to work with him, but to know him as well. I was working on his last workshop of his most recent show that he was doing. And I, the last one we did was only about four weeks ago. So I'm really glad that I had the time to do that. He's a really special human being. Well, thank you so much. You know, on offstage, I know you are not a man of rest. You are the Chairman of the Board of the Actors Fund of America, that is a huge organization and I would think particularly important this last year with Broadway being shut down. Tell the folks who don't know what the Actors Fund is and how it works. Thank you for that question. It's almost 140 years old. It's actually 139 years old this year. The Actors Fund, is first thing, it's not just for actors. It's for anybody who makes their living in performing arts and the entertainment biz. We're, we're there to support a life in the arts, basically, in times particularly of need or crisis or transition. There's been a lot of that in the last 20 months that we've been going through. I've been the chairman now for 18 years, and I've been on the board for about 21 years. 
And what's kept me there is the incredible work that they do. This is, you know, the board, me, uh, we volunteer. And we have many, many different programs, but the most active program has been our emergency assistance fund in the last 20 months. Generally in a year, we'd give out about $2 million. And this is for people that need help paying the rent, buying food, paying for a prescription. It literally is for the most essential things. That would be distributed to about maybe 1,500 people. In the last 20 months now, we've given away about $22 million mm. to almost 16,000 people. Our industry was one of the first to go down. As everybody's seeing, it's one of the last to return, particularly live theater. Television and films start a little bit sooner. My hope is that COVID will be two years, maybe a little bit more than two years from beginning to when we all feel like we're back up on our feet. But for those in show business, that's it'll probably be five years. And most of the times people think of people in show business, they think, oh, these famous actors, they're making all this money, what do they need help for? Yeah. That's very, very few people in our industry. Most people are gig workers going from job to job. Most of them have secondary jobs. And one of the hardest parts was the secondary jobs got killed yeah. uh, during this time as well. You know, a lot of actors, for instance, work in the hotel industry or the restaurant industry or, or bartenders. Well, all of those died too. So people lost their homes. People uh, lost their health insurance uh, in addition to their jobs. I mean, it's been very, very tragic. But the Actors Fund has been there to help lift everybody again. And so we're grateful to anybody who's able to to help our organization help help others. People can go on to actorsfund.org to find out more about our organization if they want to give to it or if they need the help of our organization. Another organization you're involved with, which is very important these days, is the Black Theater United Coalition. Can you touch on that yes. briefly? Yeah, Black Theater United was formed because of the murder of George Floyd and many, many before and many since, actually. But that's kind of was the catalyst of it. And uh, like many other groups that were formed at the time, you know, a lot of us thought we need to do something. So we got on the phone with each other, Audra McDonald, LaShawns, Vanessa Williams, Norm Lewis. There's uh, 19 of us we call our founding members, my wife, Allison, as well who's also a performer, um, and we decided to form this group that would help black people kind of on a macro and a micro level as well. We, the micro level being in the theater, uh -huh. we just came out with something called the New Deal, which kind of lays out EDI work for the theater, how we can give more access to, to more people. So that's one of the main things we've done. We have a whole lot, a lot of other programs too. BlackTheaterUnited.com, people can find out more info there. And on, on the macro level, we also were looking at the social issues that are going on in the country with voting rights and with the census and uh, any other issues that might might hit us. So that's that's been the other thing that I've been been busy with. Very important work. And I know you have your own talk show, Crossovers Live. Yes. Tell us about that. <laughs> Yes, I've been doing this show uh, one a month called Crossovers Live. It's a streaming show. It's on the Stellar Network. So if you just Google Crossovers Live, that's what will come up. It's called Crossovers because all of the guests are people that have crossed over from one performing art form to another, maybe from television to film or from film to recording or recording to concerts. And so I've had a lot of really wonderful guests on the show, Vanessa Williams and Bernadette Peters, Kristen Chenoweth, David Hyde Pierce was my last one. Mark Shaman, the songwriter, and Megan Hilty came on, and Audra McDonald is doing the last one of this season that'll be, I think, on the 20th of December, if I remember right. And Ariana DeBose as well will be the two special guests on that show. But it's basically uh, 
a show that is about what do we talk about when we're in our own houses or when mm -hmm. we go to each other's dressing rooms or to the green rooms. So it's a very kind of intimate conversation and we get to talk about everything. It's not just, hey, what are you doing now? What's mm -hmm. the newest project you're working on? We get to talk about all kinds of issues and kinds of things that are that are that we're thinking about or bothering us or, or delighting us or, you know, whatever pops to our head. When I do these shows, we usually have a script, you know, that is, is formed with maybe 20 questions. I don't know if I've ever gotten through more than maybe five, six, seven questions. We go, I call it riffing. riffing. Then we just start riffing all over the place and going on the, all these wonderful directions. It's, it's, uh, I've, I'm having so much fun um, doing the I show. I can tell. It sounds I, like it. That's wonderful. Crossovers Live can be found on Stellar.com. Or if you just Google Crossovers Live, you'll see the show come up. All right. Well, once again, Brian Stokes Mitchell is the host narrator of 20 Years of Christmas with the Tabernacle Choir. It'll have its broadcast premiere on PBS Monday, December 13th at 8 o'clock Eastern, streaming on PBS.org and the PBS video app. It can also be seen on BYUTV, BYUTV.org, and the free BYUTV app. I believe that's Brigham Young University. On Thursday, December 16th at 9 p.m. Program is also available for purchase on DVD. And many of the songs from the show are also streaming on Spotify and YouTube. Stokes, do you have any closing thoughts for us? I just hope that you and your listeners are safe and well this upcoming year. I hope that you have a great holiday. And my main hope is that we just continue to keep trying to love one another as best as we can as we get through this incredibly challenging time, not only at a worldwide pandemic, but just politically and everything else that we're going through as well. You know, again, hey, watch the show. Hopefully it will inspire people about what we can do when we work together, when we cooperate, when we sit down to listen to each other and, and try to create something together. I just wish everybody the best this holiday season and beyond. Brian Stokes Mitchell, it's been wonderful to have you with us today. Thanks for taking the time to be here. To you and your family, wonderful, safe, healthy holiday season, very blessed new year, one of great, great joy. Thank you, Tom. And thanks to all our friends at GBH for helping out with this episode and to Mackenzie Hurst of Thatcher & Company. And thank you, as always, to our audio engineer, Josh Broom, our executive producer and editor, Dana McBride. And to all of you listening, enjoy the holiday season and join us again for another episode of WNET Up Next in the new year. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at upnext at wnet.org. Do become a subscriber. It's free. WNET Up Next is a presentation of the Design, On-Air Promotion, Fundraising, and Traffic Department of the WNET Group. I'm Tom Stewart. Thank you.